jazz pianist Aaron Deal and his trio playing his composition, Tag Your It. It's from the CD, Live at the Players. Welcome to Artworks, the program that goes behind the scenes with some of the nation's great artists to explore how art works. I'm your host, Josephine Reed. Aaron Deal comes pretty close to being a wunderkid, touring with the Winton Marsalis Septet before he even entered the jazz program at Juilliard. Now at the ripe old age of 26, he's fulfilled that promise, winning the 2011 Cole Porter Fellowship in Jazz, the prestigious competition of the American Pianists Association. Mentored by Todd Stoll, who was director of the Columbus Youth Orchestra, Aaron Deal brings to his playing a musical dexterity, which results in a near-perfect blend of composition and improvisation that's becoming widely recognized. Since graduating from Juilliard, he's toured round the world playing at many international festivals. He's performed with the Boston Symphony, Benny Golson, and Hank Jones. And he's been a guest on Mary McPartland's public radio show. Given his commitment and his impeccable jazz credentials, I was surprised to learn that Aaron Deal used to think that jazz was old people's music. My, my grandfather, uh, Arthur Baskerville, he played, still plays a little bit uh, piano and trombone. And so when I was a kid, I always heard jazz around the house, but I also went to his gigs via Saturday brunch. Uh, in uh, my hometown, Columbus, Ohio, we go and, and hear him play with some of the local musicians. And so I usually saw people in their 60s, 70s, 80s at these gigs. But the, the funny thing is um, I grew up playing classical music. So uh, in a way it was ironic because uh, classical music could be seen as uh, archaic and, uh, and awesome or antiquated. And yet I had this... Uh, liking uh, for that style of music, but I wasn't too enthusiastic yet about jazz. What changed your mind about jazz? Uh, I went to a summer arts camp at Interlochen uh, up in uh, the northern part of Michigan near Traverse City, and I met a, a young man, I was a, a boy at that time, his name's Eldar Jangiro, if you might have heard of him. Uh, he goes by the name Eldar now, but uh, he was only about 11 or 12 at this time, and he was playing Oscar Peterson transcriptions like Oscar Peterson, and he was able to improvise in the style of jazz music. It was incredible to hear. So we hung out a lot, and he kind of showed me a few things and inter introduced me to to that whole idiom. So uh, and it was it was great to see somebody who was young playing that style of music. So he kind of got me interested, I think, initially when I, and this was when I was about probably 13, 14 years old. Now your family is very musical. Your father plays a couple of instruments, doesn't he? No, no. Actually, uh, my family is, uh, besides my grandfather, there's no one who really plays. My father, I think he played percussion in, in, in high school. My mother played piano when she was very young, but only for a brief while. I don't think she had a great teacher. In any case, uh, yeah, neither of them were really into uh, to music uh, at a young age. No. What was it that drew you to music? Well, I had um, experiences or exposure to music in church. Uh, I went to a church that was very unique. It was a predominantly African-American Catholic church, so they would have one mass would be traditional church music, and then the other mass would be gospel music. So I got a chance to kind of hear both spectrums of liturgical music. And there was a gentleman by the name of Reverend Dennis Freeman 
uh, when I was about eight years old, I just started playing piano. I started about seven years old, but I just started playing, and he saw that I had interest in the, in the piano, so he invited me up on Sundays and asked me to play a, a short hymn or something before Mass, sort of like a prelude. So that was the beginning of my experience playing in the church, and uh, I was very, very influenced by the styles of the gospel tradition, but also, I mean, I lo- had a love for classical music, and I had a great, great classical teacher when I was very young. So that's kind of how all that started. I had a, a very um, strong mu- musical influences from a very young age. And what about in high school? High school, um, there was a gentleman uh, by the name of Todd Stoll, who's now the executive director of education at Jazz Lincoln Center, and he was my high school band director in Columbus, Ohio. Lucky you. Yeah, all right. And he was the one who uh, sort of introduced me to playing in a jazz ensemble. He had a, a orchestra, a regional high school regional band called the Columbus Youth Jazz Orchestra. And it was comprised of students, music uh, students from all over central Ohio. It wasn't just one school. In fact, my high school was primarily an academic school. I mean, they had a, they had a music program, but it wasn't very strong. Uh, so I had an opportunity to play in Todd's band. So we played the music of Mingus, Duke Ellington, Dizzy Gillespie. We got a chance to play the music of all these great composers in jazz. And uh, he's the one, in fact, who introduced me to Wynt Marcellus. And that's how I got a, got to have a, a relationship with Wynton. Well, do talk about that because you toured with um, Wynton Marsalis's sextet right out of high school. Mm-hmm. But from what I heard, when he first offered you the gig, you said no. Yeah. <laughs> I did. I did say no. Um, I had uh, an offer to go to the Jazz Aspen Snowmass Camp in Aspen, Colorado. And uh, somebody had called me during the summer, uh, or it was in spring, and said, oh, well, we'd like to have you in this camp in Aspen. I said, okay. So maybe a, a month later or so, Winton called me and, and, and asked if I would play with his uh, septet for a, a few months over in Europe. And quite honestly, I you know had an obligation. I said, "Well, I'm sorry, I, <laughs> I have a commitment in Aspen." But uh, it's funny because uh, Wes Anderson is alto saxophone player. His wife called me and said, "Are you crazy? You just turned down the gig with Wynton Marcellus." So anyhow, somehow I got out of the Aspen gig, <laughs> and so I went on the road with him. Yeah. Well, what was that like? How old were you? I was 17. And how old were the other people in the band in the sextet? Uh, so, yeah, it was a septet. They were mostly, I guess, in that time, they were probably in their mid-40s. That must have been quite a learning experience in many ways for you. Oh, indeed it was. I mean, it, I really shouldn't have been out there, but I think Winton saw a certain enthusiasm, and he, he wanted to challenge me or uh, maybe even better see what I could aspire to if I wanted to work hard at it. But it was tough, definitely. I mean, these are, number one, guys who had played together for that time at 15 years or so and so they all knew each other's playing and, and I wasn't even near the level where they were on top of that that the fact that they had been playing so long together uh, and it's funny because I, I listened to recordings of of Wenton and his band his septet and I try to kind of get the flavor of how they played and the thing is those recordings were from 10 years prior or so 15 years prior or so those pieces had developed 15-fold <laughs> since then. So it was very different. Playing with them live was very different than playing along with the recording. Yeah, that was, it certainly was an experience, just being on the road, going from one city to another. Where did you tour? 
Uh, we went all over Europe. I mean, pretty much everywhere in Western Europe. How long was it? Was it a summer tour? It was uh, Yes, about a month, wow. a month and a half. And then we did some gigs. I think my first gig with him was in uh, Chicago and Ravinia. It started off in June, and then we went over to Europe, and then we came back and did some gigs on the uh, East Coast, I believe. You then went to Juilliard. What was it like coming into Juilliard after having that really intensive experience touring with Wynton Marsalis? Well, it was quite a change because um, I was playing with the creme de la creme, so to speak, in jazz. So I, I went back to playing. Well, well, the good thing, I was playing with students who are at my level <laughs> or better even, but still not at the level at the, as, as um Winton and his uh, group was at, but at the same time, it, it, I was I was a little bit spoiled having that privilege playing with them, and so when playing with with other students, I kind of had to come down to planet Earth, <laughs> so to speak. But uh, having that opportunity to be at Juilliard and getting chance to play with peers my age and developing and learning together, I mean that 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 was a tremendous four years that I had there. I was just wondering if playing with Winton and then coming back to a school if you had a more refined sense of what it was you wanted to work on? I don't know. I think I knew I had to work. I knew I had to work a lot, work hard. But I still didn't, in that short amount of time I was with him, I can't say I really knew exactly how to get there. Mm -hmm. So that's what Juilliard did. It taught me how, the how to get there. And Winton taught me what it is that I that I wanted to aspire to, you know, to. So, I know you were also involved in Juilliard's outreach program. I was. Talk a little bit about that. That was what was called the Community Service Fellowship, and it's a fellowship that's given to a select number of students, and they do cross-discipline collaborations and go out to hospitals and nursing homes and schools and talk about performing arts and perform. So I was in a group with, say, two actors and, a, and two dancers, and I was yeah the only musician. And so we came up with some crazy program on how to incorporate all the three different art forms and present it. And it was, it was a lot of fun. And that's one of the things that Juilliard is um, one of their strengths and teaching the importance of collaboration. I mean, there are, there are musicians there, jazz and classical musicians, dancers, and uh, drama students. And they very much espouse the importance of collaboration. How did the kids in the schools respond to the arts programs? Oh, they loved it. They loved it. There was actually a waiting list for it. People got denied because there was such a long list. Wow. Yeah. When did you start your own trio? Oh, probably, say, around 2006. I got a chance to do an album for uh, Pony Canyon, which was this record company in Japan, and they asked me to... Is that Mozart Jazz? That's Mozart Jazz, that's what I'm I'm getting to. uh, Mozart Jazz asked me to put together an album of 15 Mozart compositions. So I said, well, that's a fairly strange uh, project, but okay. So they wanted a trio, jazz trio album of Mozart. Well, what what do you do with that? So what I did is um, I got together two guys who I hadn't worked with a lot to that time. Uh, Quincy Davis, drummer, who's actually teaching out in Manitoba and Winnipeg now, and David Wong, who I play with quite often now. He plays with Roy Haynes and uh, Jimmy Heath, amongst other many other musicians. But anyhow, we put together a project where um, uh, basically I, I went through a bunch of Mozart scores and figured out which ones were the most adaptable thematically for, for jazz. And uh, 
put together a, a trio album of, of Mozart jazz, and that's the name of the album. Wilson's recent CD, Legacy, he presents musical themes based on Stravinsky and another on Puccini and still another on Claire de Lune. It's really interesting how much classical music and jazz have to say to one another. I think the music, the French music of uh, like Ravel or Debussy, one would call impressionistic music sometimes, I think is more adaptable, conducive to jazz than something like Mozart. I think it's much harder, much more difficult stylistically to to take Mozart or Beethoven or Haydn and put it into a jazz context. That was a great challenge to have. You know, I'd do it again if I had the opportunity. You played at Disease recently with, with Warren Wolf, yes, the xylophonist. Well, actually, the first time that group played together was uh, here at Dizzy's. That was last year, April. And we put together the music of the Modern Jazz Quartet. I had a um, an opportunity to uh, work with Mariana Lewis, who's John Lewis's widow, and she uh, asked me to organize the archive of Mr. Lewis. Mr. Lewis being the John Lewis being the uh, music director and the pianist of the Modern Jazz Quartet. So I had an opportunity for about six, five or six months to see the scores of John, all the manuscripts, pretty much a complete library of the Modern Jazz Quartet. So I had an idea of of performing the music at Dizzy's, a select number of compositions from uh, that group. So I put together Warren, uh, David Wong, and uh, Rodney Green, and we, we performed the music um, of the MJQ. So uh, this time around, we kind of put our own spin and thought about how using some of the element, elements and devices of the MJQ and creating our own compositions and trying to figure out how we can create our own ensemble sound with using some of those concepts. What's it like playing in a room like Dizzy's, which we should describe to people as a nightclub? The band is in front of this extraordinary panorama of New York. Yeah, that can be inspiration. It also can be distracting. You know, uh, you gaze off at the pianos positioned a certain way. It's easy to gaze off into Central Park South. And it's an amazing space, has amazing view, and it's, it's very, very intimate. And the sound on stage is great. Even um, usually when when I do uh, performances there, uh, with the small ensemble, it's completely acoustic. I don't have any kind of monitors or anything on stage. Mm-hmm. It's a great room to play in. The staff is wonderful. Um, food's good. So it's one of my favorite rooms in New York City. How is it different from playing in a concert hall, for example? Definitely. I mean, you have the kind of sophistication of a concert hall there, but you can actually hear. In the con- most concert halls, you can't hear, especially playing jazz. It's it's very difficult. They're, they can be too large and too boomy. They're not made, That's except good. for, you know, places like, place like Jazz and Lincoln Center aren't made for uh, made for jazz. So, you know, they're made for chamber music or bigger halls for orchestras. So it can be very tough playing jazz in, in concert halls. How about playing in church? I know you're interested in doing liturgical music that's jazzy. I, I of course, think of Duke Ellington and his sacred music. Yes. I had an opportunity when I was at Juilliard to meet a gentleman who was uh, pianist Mary Lou Williams' manager for years. His name's Father Peter O'Brien. 
and we played up uh, at Seton Hall in New Jersey some time ago, it was 2004, 2005, somewhere around there. And I uh, got a chance to know him, and later on, I started playing at a church uh, in Harlem, St. Joseph of the Holy Family, and he was a visiting priest there. And he approached me and said, hey, you know, you're playing here at the church now, Aaron, um, maybe we could kind of get a project together, having Mary Lou Williams Lenten Mass. This was just before Lent. He said, maybe we can, we can do Mary Lou Williams Lenten Mass here. It'd be nice to have the choir sing it and you play and you know Mary Lou's music. I said, well, that, that, that would be a great idea. So we had a, um, the whole Lenten season leading up to Easter. We performed and sang Mary Lou's Lenten Mass. And um, I, I hadn't known much about her sacred music, to be quite honest. And she composed a few Masses, the Lenten Mass, the Mass for Peace. There's another Mass, uh, an early Mass that she did. So she had a very extensive liturgical sacred works that I think are widely unknown. So it's nice to get a chance. And actually, I did a concert in May 2010. We uh, performed the music of Mary Lou, sacred music of Mary Lou Williams for her, would have been her 100th birthday at St. Francis Xavier downtown, where she was a member. She was a member there. So it was my trio with uh, Victor Gorens. He was playing uh, tenor saxophone and flute and in the St. Francis Xavier Choir. And we, um, we performed a lot of the different various sacred works of, of Mary Lou. It was, it was incredible. Your interest is, is in composing sacred music as well. Yeah, I, I haven't been working as much as I probably should on, on sacred music at the moment, but I do have an interest and like to do that more in the future. And people have been um, kind of urging me to, to, to do that, especially at my church. You know, it would be a great project to take on. Okay, let's talk about the competition. Sure. The 2011 Cole Porter Fellowship in Music. Mm-hmm. It's very intense. And indeed, it was, yes, it was very intense. How does the competition unfold? There are five finalists. I was one of five. What's the selection process to become a finalist? Oh, sure. You have to be nominated by someone, a reputable, quote-unquote, individual in the jazz world. So I think there are about 40 applicants, I believe, total. Once you're nominated, you send in the CD, and then they'll let you know if you are one of the finalists or not. How many performances do you give over what span? Each finalist goes to Indianapolis, which is where the APA is based, for uh, about a week. Um, They have their own week, so to speak, and they perform one night at the Jazz Kitchen. But before that, they do community involvement outreach in the one of the Indianapolis schools, and they like we all taught uh, for a few days at at a school there. We performed at the Jazz Kitchen for the night, so that's considered what they call the semifinals. Okay, it's not technically a semifinal because everybody's a finalist, right? But they they have their own week uh, in, in in Indy, and then you come back. We came back in uh, April uh, for a week. And we had various activities that we participated in, performances, and community outreach. And then on uh, Friday night, uh, everybody performs at the Jazz Kitchen for about 20 minutes or so. So all the finalists, for the first time, were together. Okay, you know, because before that, we, we really didn't see too much of each other. The next night is the, the big night where we got a chance to play with the Buscelli Wallerob Orchestra. And Britton Wallerob, who's a fine arranger, he composed or arranged a standard for each of us that we had to perform a jazz standard. 
Um, what was yours? Nardis, Bill Evans, yes. And then we also had a, an opportunity to perform with Dee Dee Bridgewater, which was very, very exciting. That, would, for me, was kind of like the highlight, highlighted the whole experience doing that. She's, she's incredible. And then after performing with Dee Dee and, and Brent, the, the winner was announced, and I was fortunate to receive the fellowship. Winning the Cole Porter is a great honor, but it's also a generous award, and it supports career development. That's great. So now I actually just got finished recording for Mac Avenue. And one of the incentives in, in receiving this fellowship is you, you have an opportunity to perform for Mac Avenue Records. So Warren, David, Rodney, and myself, we were in the studio Monday and Tuesday recording for this album that's going to be re- released in the spring of t- 2012. What's the difference between performing and studio work? There's a, there's a big difference because, number one, typically when you're, you're doing a professional recording, you're in isolation. The whole situation is very sterile. And when I say isolation, you're in, every musician is in a completely different room, okay? And that helps with editing and just the clarity of the album. So it's, it's a very sterile environment. And I find it's, it's very hard to record because you're, you're listening through earphones to everybody and you can't really feel the band. When you're performing live, like when we're just at Dizzy's, in such a small space, you can feel everybody. You can feel their beat. You can feel their pulse. You can hear them very clearly. So I love playing live, especially in intimate settings. You have that feeling of, of, of interacting with somebody in such close proximity. And that's one of, that's one of the advantages of, of being in a venue like Dizzy's or the Va- Village Vanguard or wh- wherever, as Blue opposed Note, to yeah. or Blue Note or yeah, wherever, as opposed to being in a, in a huge concert hall. Can you just say a word about what it meant for you to have the opportunity to work with somebody like Todd Stoll? Ooh, I mean, I, I could have a, an hour talk about that because to have a, an educator who is so extremely sincere and passionate about educating students, teaching them about jazz, about music, about the arts. I mean, this is a guy who has spent basically... The entire day, he's a he was a high school band director, but he also had the youth jazz orchestra. He also did he, he put together gigs for us, opportunities for us to play in Central Ohio. And I I didn't get a chance to tour with him, but he also did tours uh, with the orchestra abroad in Europe. But he is such a passionate educator, and I feel like one of the very few guys out here who who have that sort of fire in them to teach young students. I mean, when, when I say that, the sort of fire, I mean, he, he'll talk to you at 11, 12 o'clock at night and give you information about, about mm-hmm. jazz or just being a mentor figure. I haven't really had anybody quite like that in my musical or my musical experiences. And I, I'm just so happy that he's here in New York now at Jazz and Lincoln Center. I mean, maybe I'm a little bit jealous now that Jazz and Lincoln Center has him and he doesn't have quite as much time <laughs> to talk as uh, maybe I'd like to but he's he's uh, an incredible human being and um, somebody very special holds a special place in my heart indeed you also played with one of I think the most elegant jazz pianists Hank Jones oh yes very much a generous uh, individual. I got a chance to to interact with him a few times and um, you know listen to quite a few of his records and and it still amazed me hearing him how fresh his ideas were, how 
how fluid he was as a pianist and as an individual. He was the nicest guy you'll ever meet, most genuine, and he had a very uh, sophisticated demeanor, very very gentleman quality to him, but self-effacing, you know, humble. Uh, I got a chance to do a master class with him uh, at NYU some time ago, and I, I think that was the first time I got a chance to hear him live, but just the, the kind of sound that he got out of the piano. It's just incredible. It's just Oh, this is so pure. So he was a tremendous individual. I was really happy got it, that I got a chance to know him. And you also got a chance to be on piano jazz with Marion McPartland. Yes, piano jazz. Wow, a program I adore. Oh yes, I I, I got to I got a chance to hear her for her. I guess it was she said it was her going to be her final public appearance at uh, Dizzy's, and it's amazing. You can hear the whole history of jazz piano in just a few notes. The same with Hank Jones, you know, being at the age uh, that Marion is at now, I think she's 93, and Hank, when, before he passed away, was about, I think, 91. Just to hear the depth of sound and the depth of the history and the information and the experiences they have had over the course of their lifetime just coming out in just a few notes, it's just... It's amazing to witness. And when I went on their show, it was it's interesting because she asked me to come be on her radio show. And I was like, "What? I don't know really what you could talk to me about. Like, were you going to interview me? Like, what what have I done?" So the the way I approached it is, I just started asking her questions. <laughs> you know, what, what what was it like at the Hickory House and being around all these people, Bud and Monk and Mary Lou Williams? And so I just kind of approached the show from that angle. That was that was an incredible experience playing with her on the show. You're 26 years old. You're very accomplished. And somehow you've managed to create a life in which you really can support yourself doing what you love. Yeah. I mean, I, I consider myself very fortunate. I mean, I think that old saying where there's a will, there's a way. And I, I just have such a passion for jazz music and playing the piano that I'll I just find a way to a way to make it work, so to speak. Yeah, fortunately, I have so far. Oh, I have great hopes. Oh, I think we oh, all do. Oh, Aaron, thank you so much. Thank I you, Joe. really appreciate you oh, giving me your pleasure. time. All right. Thank you. That was jazz pianist Aaron Deal. You've been listening to Artworks, produced at the National Endowment for the Arts. Adam Campy is the musical supervisor. Excerpts from Tag Your It and Dorsum, composed by Aaron Deal. Excerpts from Clarinet Concerto in A Major, composed by Wolfgang Amadeus Mozart. All performed by the Aaron Deal Trio from the CD, Live at the Players, used courtesy of Mac Avenue Records. The Artworks podcast is posted every Thursday at arts.gov, and now you can subscribe to Artworks at iTunes U. Just click on the iTunes link on our podcast page. We'll be back the first Thursday in January with a conversation with 2012 jazz master Jack DeJeanette. If you love jazz, don't miss the 2012 NEA Jazz Masters Concert and Awards Ceremony. It'll take place at 7.30 p.m. on January 10th at Jazz at Lincoln Center. Along with Jack DeJeanette, the NEA is honoring Vaughn Freeman, Charlie Hayden, Jimmy Owens, and Sheila Jordan. The concert may be sold out, but you don't have to miss the action. We're webcasting it live. Go to arts.gov and click on Jazz Masters for more information about this free event and live webcast. To find out how art works in communities across the country, keep checking the Artworks blog. 
or follow us at NEA Arts on Twitter. For the National Endowment for the Arts, I'm Josephine Reed, wishing you happy and healthy holidays. Thank you for listening.